You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And joining me today on the show is Stephen Denny, a political scientist at the University of Toronto and managing editor of SinoNK.com. I'm glad to have Stephen back on the show. You may remember him if you're a longtime listener from an earlier episode talking th- talking us through the once-in-a-lifetime political scandal in South Korea involving um, former President Park Geun-hye, who's now been impeached, and her confidant, Cho Shin-chil. Uh, Stephen gave us a very helpful play-by-play of that scandal. Stephen, I guess today we're going to talk about the bookend of what's been an incredible seven months in South Korean politics uh, leading up to the election of liberal Moon Jae-in. So yes. thanks for joining me. My pleasure. So I guess, Stephen, I'm going to begin this podcast by talking about something that's been frustrating me a little bit, right? Uh, I'm not an observer. I'm not a close observer of South Korean politics like you are. I don't read Korean. Um, but, you know, I I know enough to know that South Korean voters um, in this election, I mean, especially given what happened with this scandal, um, you know, it seemed like every article that you read about Moon Jae-in in kind of, you know, be it the New York Times, Washington Post, like, uh, well, maybe not the Washington Post, but, uh, you know, some of the other outlets would always begin with, Mentions of, uh, you know, North Korea, the Sunshine Policy Thad that really made it seem like this was all about inter-Korean relations, uh, Asian security, missile defense, the U.S. alliance. Um, but, you know, as as I think um, you and I both know, I mean, that probably wasn't what was driving South Korean people to actually, you know, elect Moon Jae-in, who actually won a pretty significant mandate here. So, you know, I guess the opening question I have for you is... What is the takeaway, uh, the big takeaway for you from this election in South Korea? Right. The two issues that were stated as the most important by the the Korean electorate were, one, economic revitalization, and two, job creation. So how about that? You're telling me that South Koreans are just like people everywhere else and they care about jobs and the economy. Pocketbook issues always predominate in elections Mm -hmm. anywhere and everywhere. So I guess, uh, you know, knowing that, um, why why Moon Jae-in? I mean, you know, a lot of the commentary, I guess, um, it, leading up to Park Geun-hye's impeachment, uh, you know, pretty much described this election as um, Moon's election to lose, which is something you also note in your feature article that you've uh, just published with us at The Diplomat um, on this. So, uh, you know, why was it kind of um, like, what were the factors that led to Moon being this kind of obvious uh, front runner so early on? First and foremost was the fact that the Pakane administration and her conservative party, which at the time was it's called Senuri, Senuri Dan, Senuri Party, uh, they had a magnificent fall from grace, a spectacular fall from grace, uh, with Pakane's impeachment, uh, which precipitated the split and partial disintegration of the ruling conservative party. You had a situation wherein there was a void. And Moon Jae-in and the Minju party, Toburu Minju Dang, stepped into that void. And Moon, with his great name recognition and his bona fides, was able to capitalize on uh, the fallout from the impeachment scandal. So he stepped into that and he presented himself as a qualified, sensible alternative to Park Geun-hye. And the Korean electorate responding to the conditions that existed thought it was appropriate that the opposition be given a shot. So, um, 
you know, tell us a bit about Moon. Uh, who is he? I mean, he is, you know, commonly identified as a liberal, identified as a protege of former President Roh Moo-hyun, and, uh, you know, clearly comes from a certain tradition in South Korean politics in the democracy era. Uh, so, so who is he? And uh, is what I just said an, an accurate description of Moon? Yes, it is. Um, but let's go a little bit further. So I don't want to go all the way back to his childhood. People can read up on that. He has an interesting story. His father is from was a refugee from North Korea, uh, evacuated in a famous uh, evacuation led by the Americans. But let's talk a bit. Uh, let's talk a bit more recently. So Moon Jae-in is a member of the so-called 386 generation. Um, those are people today in around their 50s. These are the, these are many of the people who belong to this generation. No, let me correct myself. Some few of the people who belong to this broader generation, this age cohort, participated or were active participants in the democracy movement in the 1980s as students. Moon was one of them. He was arrested for it in prison and is the reason why he was barred from becoming a judge after finishing law school. So he experienced, he had a very unique formative experience as a student democracy activist in the 1980s. This has colored his view of things, you could argue, but it puts him in a unique category of political elites today who are in positions of power or are positioned to be in positions of power. Now, he got his first real experience as the chief of staff to the late president, No Mu Hyun, and since then, he has carried the legacy of Roe. He is the so-called Let's call it kingpin of the road line. Within the liberal party, there are two traditions, two legacies, two lines. There's the pro low, the pro road line, as it's called, and the uh, pro Kim line. Kim refers to Kim Dae Jung, the other liberal heavy hitter who, who was president uh, prior to No Mu Hyun. Moon Jae-in leads the pro row line. With his election, it ushers them to the forefront uh, and back into the position of power. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, a lot of people speculate that Moon Jae-in will run his administration similar to the way in which Nomi Hyun did. And that's where you get a lot of these articles about a new administration coming to power that's going to be at odds with the U.S. government, that's going to cause uh, issues for the U.S. ROC alliance. Because people are drawing from the experience of the No Hyun administration, which sought to um, redefine the nature of the U.S. Rock Alliance to pursue a more autonomous uh, path for the ROK vis-a-vis -vis the United States and others. And so people look at those experiences and say, well, because Moon is representing the pro-road line, was a member of his administration and is from this 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 cohort of people from this you know politically active generation he's going to be a very different a very bold uh, and autonomous politician and you know some uh, some commentators took this a little bit further and actually described him as, as anti-american and uh, i was wondering if you could comment a bit on that there was a tweet wasn't there from a cnn analyst mm -hmm. let's um let's slow his role a little bit uh no one uh, and Moon Jae-in are not anti-American. South Korea has a tradition of 
anti-American anti-Americanism. I think that you can trace it back to uh, the early '80s or even before. Um, but the U.S.'s reluctance or inability or association with persecution in the 1980s, specifically the Guangzhou massacre, um, and its always contentious relationship with Korea, has uh, has resulted in this sort of latent anti-Americanism. Mm-hmm. But I think that South Korea, as it's democratized and as it's matured uh, politically, has grown out of that, so to speak. I don't mean that to sound condescending, but you know, South Korea has arrived. It's coming to its own. It's its own democracy. In fact, America's got a lot to learn from South Korea right about now. I was going to say, especially this week. I mean, looking at what's happened in South Korean politics over the past six months, people power to the point of this election. You know, so the South Koreans could have a thing or two to teach this country about democracy today. In, indeed. Kathy Moon, she has a piece out there where she talks about this transition um, in, Ameri- sorry, in, in Korean political logic and political thinking addressing anti-Americanism. And she says it's gone from being a sort of like emotional, uh, active protest sort of spirit to being a more rational one. Whereas, you know, Koreans will perhaps complain about uh, the position the United States puts them in or complain about the policies that the U.S. pursues in the region and the position that it puts Korea in. But they deal with it in a way that is befitting of a developed a mature, a democratic country that is capable of dealing with other countries um, in a constructive manner. And I think she's right about that. So these, the speculation that, that they're going to, that Moon is in his administration is going to pursue a path that's going to lead to confrontation is wild speculation based upon zero evidence. If anything, if we look at what evidence is available, as I noted in my piece, uh, that went up today at the diplomat moon kind of went out of his way to ins- to to assure those who are interested that he plans on working with the united states and promoting a constructive relationship and i think that his appointment for you need to check me on this ambassador it's very recent i think it was just it was just posted yesterday his name is hong sokyun he is a political heavy hitter, but he's a serious man who will who has worked with the United States before and in other international institutions. And if that is a signal from Moon as to how he's going to deal with the U.S. Rock Alliance and its relationship, it's a good signal that he's ready to he's ready to play ball in a very serious, like cooperative way. Mm hmm. You know, I mean, my perspective as somebody who watches South Korean foreign policy is that everything he's done in his first you know, first few hours. I mean, he wasted no time. He got on the phone, talked to uh, Donald Trump, talked to Xi Jinping, talked to Shinzo Abe, even Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, four out of the six parties uh, in the in the North Korea, um, I guess, the now defunct uh, diplomatic process. I mean, he is clearly showing a degree of seriousness and sobriety over this issue. Uh, he hasn't proven himself to be that kind of passionate idea, you know, ideologue that some people uh, made him out to be with uh, with all the you know sunshine policy 2.0, 3.0 mania. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I would absolutely concur with that. Um, and you know, you you brought up this point about anti-Americanism, and I wanted to ask you. I mean, we saw 
you know, as as recently as early May, uh, when the United States Pacific Command kind of rushed in uh, the missile defense system, Thad, uh, that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, but I'm glad to have you on as uh, someone who knows South Korean politics really well, because we mostly talk about, you know, boring stuff like the intercept range and the technical details. Um, but, you know, I mean, what what really is the significance of the South Korean pushback against this system? I mean, is this kind of garden variety um, I guess, you know, opposition to militarism, opposition to, uh, you know, any kind of, um, you know, new deployment of missile systems in the country that you'd maybe see in, you know, anywhere else where you'd kind of have a, a small fringe of people kind of protesting? Or is this kind of a significant issue that I think, uh, that you think at least, uh, you know, should um, inform the, uh, the alliance conversation more broadly? Right. So it's, it's a bit of a question mark hanging over the fat of fad as an issue. I think that a lot of the criticism comes from actually the way in which the Pakane administration dealt with it. What I mean by that is they did not uh, they did not arrive at the decision to approve the installation of that through a democratic process. They did not inform the citizens of Songju, south of Seoul, where it's installed on a Lotte golf course, of their intent or their plan to. Uh, install it there. They didn't even inform the conservative lawmakers in the area. Songju is, leans conservatives. Lawmakers are are conservatives, and they were upset. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're upsetting those who are already on your team, you're doing something wrong. So I think it's the way in which the, the Park administration rode roughshod over society effectively that has caused a lot of the antagonism. And that, I think, is what Moon means by, you know, we need to revisit this and it needs to be dealt with in a democratic way or through democratic process. Um, without reading too much into his words, I think that's what he's alluding to. Right. What does that mean, actually, though? Because it's kind of a fail, isn't it? I mean, the Americans rushed the installation to ensure that all pieces were in place before the election. Which was a bad uh, look, by the way. I mean, how was that received in South Korea? <laughs> it was not received particularly well. Uh, Moon Jae-in hinted uh, and others that it was a type of interference. Mm-hmm. You know, Moon asked the Americans to respect Korea's democracy and its democratic process. And I think he was alluding to how that um, affected sort of the political discourse in a way that made a lot of people uncomfortable, including himself. And the Trump Reuters interview didn't help, I imagine? No, I can't imagine it. It, <laughs> it, it helped. Yeah, demanding <laughs> demanding that uh, South Korea didn't pay for it really did not go over well. I, I was country for three weeks to the election and left the day after. Mm-hmm. And at a number of social events that I was at uh, with my Korean friends, I was sort of seen as an American diplomat of sorts, even though I'm not. Uh, and I was asked about this, like, why is he demanding that suddenly we pay for it? Didn't you want it here in the first place? And the response to that is, I'm sorry. <laughs> But it's, it, the point being that it, it's it's clearly confusing and frustrating to Koreans the way in which that situation has been dealt with. So it'll, it'll be interesting, though, to see how Moon's administration deals with it politically. Right. Um, because I'm not quite sure what can be done. The, the idea of it being withdrawn um, seems unlikely. But perhaps a more inclusive conversation about how it would be used or why it's being installed in the first place could help assuage some of the anxiety or um, ill will that's been generated in the way in which the process took place. Well, right. And, you know, I mean, this conversation about South Korean autonomy, I mean, part of the issue is 
the costs for the bilateral relationship with China. Uh, you look at where that relationship was in 2015 with Pak at you know Xi's parade to celebrate the 70th anniversary at the end of the Second World War to where it is now. Um, there is room to win some goodwill with Beijing by uh, rolling that back, potentially swapping out the radar, which is what really bothers China. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, my um, my vantage point, it seems like there is actually, like, um, it doesn't seem like a far-fetched, crazy probability. Uh, possibility to me that it could be something that changes down the line um certainly i think the united states if they you know if they wouldn't be happy with changes um it might be something that you know if push comes to shove just simply has to be done something else i wanted to ask you um you know i've been watching um the japan south korea relationship uh, this year quite closely i mean the final and irreversible agreement on comfort women the uh euphemistic term for the wartime sexual slavery of korean women um Effectively, you know, we saw the disintegration of that in in January, and it generated fairly little, uh, you know, fanfare. I mean, civil society. I think we had a Twitter exchange about this. Actually, you and I, uh, we, we talked about it a little. And you know, I, I kind of wanted to get the sense, you know, get your sense for where you think relationship between Seoul and Tokyo is likely to go under under Moon. How does he how does he view the relationship with Japan, uh, which is obviously something the United States worries about when it thinks about alliance coordination in Northeast Asia. Um, but, you know, given the civil society pressures in South Korea, uh, public opinion towards Japan, which is, uh, uh, as far as I understand it, not in a very good place right now. Um, how do you see this, um, uh, this relationship developing? It's a good question. You know, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I think that uh, public opinion worsened during the Park Geun-hye administration, uh, even though I think government to government cooperation uh, improved. But again, the with regards to the agreement, I think it was another example of the the Pakane administration acting in a in a way that citizens perceive to be um, not in their best interest, or if not that, then without their cooperation or participation. And so, I think there was a lot of ill will generated because of that. How it's going to play going forward and how will the Moon Jae-in administration um, handle that, I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know, they there's news about uh, Moon wanting to scrap the deal and start over or to do something else. Uh, but I'm not quite sure how that will play out. So I don't want to say anything further at this point other than um, it will be interesting. But then again, everything else will be interesting. Absolutely. So that doesn't really tell you a whole lot. Yeah. No, South Korea might be one of the most interesting countries in all of Asia at the moment, politically. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I noted that, you know, he spoke to Abe, which I think is a positive sign given uh, how long it took um, Park and Abe to, you know, not only meet face to face, but uh, even just have communication early on after her election. So, so that at least is a positive sign. But um, as you mentioned, I mean, I guess we'll we'll see how this develops. Um, a question I wanted to ask you now, you know, I guess this kind of goes back to your article, is uh, you know just looking at the you know some of these divides in South Korean politics, and you talk about a couple of them. You talk about the well-known regional divide, uh, which I made a joke about on Twitter. Um, got a few retweets about you know the uh, the three kingdoms of Korea and South Korea's old uh, vertical split. Uh, right. down the middle between the liberal side and the conservatives uh, in the in the east. But um, what I think is interesting is the age um, factor, right? So um, uh, can you talk a bit about, you know, how um, how South Korea, uh, how you see kind of the age factor in South Korean politics developing? Yes. So you can divide South Korea into basically two groups. Uh, those who 
are 60 and above, maybe 55 and above, uh, and basically everyone else, or at least 20s, 30s, and 40s. The 50s, that 386 generation I alluded to before, is kind of this interesting transition or transitional generation. I'll come back to them in a moment. But those who are 55 or 60 and above are those who came of age at a very different time in South Korean history. They came of age under authoritarian, the Park Chung-hee administration, the Park Chung-hee re- authoritarian regime, or before that, and an older authoritarian regime. Whereas those 20 to 40, or really 19 to 46, basically, came of age in the era of democracy, the sixth and current republic. And uh, the more I look at it, uh, the more I see this very sharp generational divide. So you've got this authoritarian generation and this democratic generation. And you can see there these, these sharp distinctions on a number of dimensions. And you, can, you could see it very clearly in this election. That's what I talked a bit about in that article from today. What I mean by that is this. So those who are 60 and above, or no, I'm sorry, 70 and above, more than 50% of those who were age 70 and above uh, voted for Hong Jun-pyo, according to the exit polls, I hasten to add. We don't have the full data on the actual election quite yet. Uh, those who were in their 60s, it was just under 50. Those in, uh, in their 50s, it was not quite that high, somewhere in the middle as a transitional generation. Then when you get to that democratic generation, it just drops off a cliff. I think it's around 11% for those in their 40s, and then it's like sub-10 after that. Right. So this is significant, I think, because of the message that was pushed by Hong Jun-pyo in his campaign. He ran something straight out of the Cold War, where he – it was almost unbelievable <laughs> in a way. It's So I'm walking in the streets of Seoul, and you come up to an intersection, and you see these banners waving in the wind. All the candidates have their banners up at the intersections corresponding to their numbers, and they got their face on it. And it says, you know, some some cliched throwaway message, except Hong's. Hong Jun-pyo's when I – at the, the intersection next to the, the place where I stay when I'm in Seoul, it said, pro-North leftists, no. Or it's Chinbuk Seriok, no. Or I'm sorry, it's it's it's, it's Chinbuk Chwapa, uh, no. So pro-North leftists, no. And then a free Republic of Korea, yes. <laughs> and for those who watched uh, debates or listened to uh, Hong on the on television or read about him in media knows that he portrayed, he portrayed everyone, especially moon as effectively pro North Korean leftist. So anyone who wasn't voting for him was supporting North Korea or was, you know, undermining the integrity or, or, or the, the freedom of South Korea. And the fact that so many people from this older generation voted for him, I think, tells us a lot about the national identity of those of, the, of that group of people. Mm-hmm. And it's at odds with so much of society of, of of younger South Koreans, but not just younger South Koreans, of those who came of age in the democratic era, which includes those up in their 40s. Right. And and so that's I think that's interesting and notable um, and really highlights or underscores this. This uh, the this this difference in the national identity of these two groups, right? And this is something I come back to in my conversations with uh, you know South Korean government officials uh, that I meet here in New York, um, diplomats, 
And, you know, it's always the conversation about how, um, you know, these family reunions, reunification, the Korean identity, the, you know, the basically the identity of Koreans as, you know, one people, two states, how how that will evolve with these uh, trends that you've identified, which I think are quite compelling. You know, I mean, this uh, this youth divide um, seems to be pretty strong right now. I mean, uh, it seems like South Korean youth don't live with this sort of Damocles over their head every day where they're worried about kind of the fate of the peninsula between the two Koreas. I mean, how how do you think, I mean, you know, you know, even like looking forward um, to Moon's president, like beyond Moon's presidency, I mean, how will South Korea come to reckon with with the issue of reunification going forward? Right. I think there there is a, there's a correlation between, say, those who will support Hong and those who most strongly advocate or support for national reunification. Um, the, those who have grown up uh, in the democratic era, who've come of age in the democratic era, when I say that, I basically mean when they turn 18. Those people are less likely to support uh, unification than those who came of age in a previous era. So what happens when the generation which I've described, those who supported home, not all of them, but a lot of them, what happens when they're replaced, right, 20 years from now? assuming that nothing happens before then. Uh, and then what will uh, South Koreans think about unification? Or when those from this younger generation are in positions of power, are in Moon Jae-in's place? I mean, what will happen? It, we're getting into the you know the realm of speculation, so I don't want to go too far. Well, but informed we speculation, so go ahead. <laughs> yes, it is. It's informed speculation. I think we can, though, we can identify that younger South Koreans, especially those in their 20s and 30s, um, are finding the idea of unification, you know, less appetizing. Um, for them, they don't see the benefit. In fact, for many of them, they see they see North Koreans as uh, increasingly part of a different nation. That these cultural differences that have uh, developed over the over the years. Um, are recognized by these younger South Koreans. For them, they have a hard time identifying with the supposed ethnic kin. And you can see it in the data. Uh, when, when they're asked to, about their support for unification, about how they view North Korea, uh, and about how they view uh, defectors who have resettled in South Korean society, you can see this, this growing difference. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean though, that it will be a problem if South Korea is presented with the option, say, of reunification. Why I don't think it's necessarily a problem is because I have, I'm hopeful for a South Korean democratic society. And while, you know, the flames of ethnic nationalism may have died down, what's replaced it is um, ideas of civic inclusiveness of uh, ideas of civic participation, what makes a democratic society function and work. Uh, a society that will take in difference, not only meaning North Koreans, but others as well, as South Korea becomes increasingly more diverse, ethnically and culturally. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, it might even be a better thing because uh, as a democrat, a convinced democrat and a fan of inclusiveness and uh, and diversity, I think you can see that democratic societies promote that kind of thing. And this is the kind of culture and political system in which these people are coming of age. 
So I'm hopeful, even though their support for these uh, things like unification uh, and identification with an ethnic nation are decreasing. Mm -hmm. All right, Stephen, um, one more question for you. And I have to ask this, um, and you know what it's going to be. Donald Trump. Um, okay. We've seen reports, uh, you know, I've been reading his, you know, there have been remarkable statements from South Korean candidates. You you hinted at some of this after the Thad issue. But how far, you know, how far is he bearing on kind of South Korean perceptions of the alliance with the United States, right? If there is something that will bring this alliance to a place where coordination grows increasingly difficult and, uh, you know, we kind of cross a point of no return, it seems like it will be under Donald Trump. How do you, um, how would you say that, you know, we should uh, think about how Trump is perceived in, uh, in South Korea? It's a tough question. Um, I think he's, from my experience in interacting with um, Koreans of different, from different age cohorts of different political predispositions, there's a lot of uncertainty, but everyone is uncertain about what Donald Trump means when he speaks. Very true. I don't, I'm not worried though, because the structural constraints prevent him from doing anything undesirable, I think. And in fact, because I think his administration is ill-equipped to handle uh, the complicated issue of North Korea's nuclear problem um, or the situation on the peninsula, that uh, he, he's got to welcome a more assertive you know, negotiator, as the Times has described Moon Jae-in. And insofar as public statements are concerned, I think that both Moon and Trump have articulated uh, positions about what's to be done in the region that are far more complimentary than they are anything else. Uh, I think they're both willing to scrap, you know, strategic patience for an alternative, whether that's a return to the six party talks or something else. I think both Moon and Trump have admitted that they are or signaled that they are willing to try something else. Um, Moon has signaled his willingness to go to Pyongyang under the right conditions. Donald Trump has indicated or said that he's willing to meet Kim Jong-un. To me, that sounds like they're more they're on the same page, if anything. So while South Koreans are uncertain, and rightfully so, about what Donald Trump actually wants or what he means, I don't think we've been given any evidence that would indicate that there is a, that the relationship will become antagonistic. Um, so I'm not worried. And uh, that's what I told my Korean friends as well, that I basically said what I just said to you. Mm -hmm. And I think I think they could see it and they more or less agreed. So I'm not really worried about the future of the Rock U.S. alliance or of U.S. Korea cooperation. In fact, I'm looking forward to it now that South Korea, um, you know, has more than a placeholder president and someone who's quite keen to, I think, deal with a lot of the problems that were created under the previous administration. So I think people should be bullish. Right. Yeah, that is the conclusion you uh, come to in your article. Be uh, South Koreans are bullish about Moon and so should we. Um, well, Stephen, thank you for joining me today for what was, I think, an illuminating discussion about South Korean politics. I think uh, when we talk about the Korean Peninsula on this podcast, I will come clean that we tend to focus on the hard security matters. But I think these questions of national uh, national identity and politics are equally important. Um, so uh, thanks again for joining me.
Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And we'll uh, hope to have you back on uh, maybe a few months down the line to uh, take stock of how Moon is doing and how the Alliance is doing. And uh, Look forward so, to it. Yeah. So for our listeners, as always, if you like the podcast and you haven't subscribed, please do so. And if you're a subscriber and you've been listening to this and you like what you hear, please leave, a, uh, leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks for listening.